chapter 5. We have been uh, working our way uh, through the book of Romans, and we've been uh, spending the, the lingering a little bit in Romans 5. It's such uh, deep and rich uh, words in these uh, opening verses of Romans 5, and so we're continuing that somewhat slow pace this morning. We come to Romans 5, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 8 as we ponder God's love for us in these verses. So Romans 5, verses 5 through 8. And uh, before we read that portion of Scripture, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather in worship. And we thank you, Lord, for what we've already seen about your amazing love for us in Christ. And I pray now this morning, O Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. You would take us even deeper, O Lord, into this great theme of your love for us. I pray that you would cultivate our hearts by your spirit, that your word might be planted deep in us, that it might produce abundant and transforming fruit, that we might be changed and transformed by a renewed or a deepened understanding and awareness of your love for us. And so we offer ourselves to you for this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word, Romans 5, verses 5 through 8. We looked at verses, uh, whatever it was, 2 through 5, 3 through 5, 2 through 5 last week. And so, um, but there's a little part of verse 5 that we didn't, we didn't quite expand on, so I'm including it, and plus it'll help us to see the bridge. Last week was all about the hope that we have and there's a transition from hope to love, and so we're going to kind of pick that up again and say a little bit more about what we didn't quite cover in verse 5 last time, so we'll pick it up there. So Paul says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You may be seated. Well, many of the most uh, memorable songs that we love and know are love songs. There are, have been so many love songs written over the years. And so I thought I would begin this morning by, by sharing some lines from some of these famous love songs. And I'm going to invite you to participate with me. And so I'm going to see if you can finish the line of these songs. I have five of them for you. And, and so if you know the... the uh, you know, know how the line ends, then I invite you just to speak it out. Don't be shy. Just, just say it and, and, uh, if, if you know it. So we'll begin with an easy one by Bette Midler. I can fly higher than an eagle for you are the... 
The wind beneath my wings. How about this one by the legendary Elvis? Wise men say only fools rush in, but I can't help. I would sing it if I could, but I, you would, nobody would want to hear that. So yeah, falling in love with you. There's this one by Sam Cooke. Don't know much about history, don't know much biology, don't know much about a science book, don't know much about the French I took, but I do know that I love you, and I know that if you love me too, what a, what a wonderful world this would be. How about a Bob Dylan song? I could, make, I could make you happy, make your dreams come true. There's nothing that I wouldn't do. Go to the ends of the earth for you to make you feel my, <laughs> to make you feel my love, right? That is a Bob Dylan song, right? Isn't it? Nobody knows that song? Okay, all right, okay. I thought these last two would be a little bit more obscure. And so here, if you're a, anybody a country music fan like I am, I, you know, I talk about country music a lot. All right, the two of us that are country music fans, here we go. <laughs> this is a classic country song by Randy Travis. I hope you know it. If you wonder how long I'll be faithful, I'll be happy to tell you again, I'm going to love you. Yeah, hey, see, there's more country songs out there than we realize. I'm going to love you forever and ever, forever and ever. Amen. There are many good love songs. And those love songs have many good and memorable lines. But as memorable as these lines may be, there is no greater expression of love than what we find here in Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's a line that overshadows all other lines because it speaks of a love that trumps all other loves. As we continue our study of Romans 5 this morning, Paul takes us into this theme of love. Really for the first time in, in the book, he's been kind of building towards it. Now he he lays it out, and he'll come back to it again, especially Romans 8. So Romans 5 and Romans 8 kind of balance each other out, and he'll come back to these themes in even, arguably, even greater force and greater beauty and depth in Romans chapter 8. But for now, he launches into it. And, and like a diamond, we see in these verses multiple facets of God's love for us, all of which contribute to its stunning beauty. And so we see first that it is an extravagant love that substantiates our hope. That's what we see in verse 5. And like I mentioned, we looked at verse 5 last week where Paul was talking about the hope that we have in Christ. And he said that it is the hope of the glory of God, which means it is the hope of glorification, the hope that we will share in his glory, that we will see God face to face. And he said this hope will not put us to shame. In verse 5, meaning that it won't leave us humiliated in the end. It won't leave us uh, embarrassed or humiliated on the last day because it won't prove to be a false hope. Our hope of glory will be vindicated. It will be substantiated. It will, it will, be, it will, come, it will come to fruition and prove to have been a true hope. And Paul says, well, well how do we know that? And Paul says, we know that because of God's love. 
So he said in verse 5, and Pope does not put us to shame. Why? How do we know that? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So our, our hope is substantiated by God's love for us. And what I want to see, what I want us to see this morning, which we didn't uh, explore last week, is that, is that this love that substantiates our hope is an extravagant love. When Paul says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts, he uses uh, the Greek word ekcheo, which is a word that indicates abundance, overabundance, exceeding abundance. It means to, to pour out or to gush out, to, to run greedily out, or when it's used figuratively, it, it means to lavish or to experience in abundance. The same word is used in Matthew 26, verse 28, where Jesus speaks of his blood at the Last Supper, and he says, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And, when Jesus, and think about what Jesus is saying. When Jesus speaks of his blood being poured out, he's saying that it is so lavishly given that it covers all of the sins of all of his people. The word is used in Acts chapter 2 to describe the overwhelming outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You remember that scene? It was like an explosion, Luke says. It was like a, a violent wind that, le that left the apostles speaking in tongues as they shared the good news of Jesus. And then people wondered, well, what, is it, what did it mean? We've never seen anything like this before, this, this overwhelming, this, this, this explosive event. And Peter says that it was, or said that it was a fulfillment of what God had said through the prophet Joel. That in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And the Holy Spirit was, again, poured out in such extravagance, such abundance, that, that 3,000 people were converted, uh, converted in a single day. The same word is used in Matthew 26, verse 7, when Jesus was at the home of, of Simon the leper. And a woman came to him with a jar of very expensive perfume, and she wanted to express her, her, her deep love and her devotion and her commitment to Jesus. And so what did she do? Did she take that expensive perfume and, and dab a little bit onto him? No. If you remember the scene, Matthew says that she came to him with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume, which she poured, poured out, onto his head as he was reclining at the table. And the implication is that she, she took that expensive jar of perfume and she dumped the whole thing on him. She, she broke the jar and she let it all run out onto his head. And of course, if you remember, the disciples were appalled at the extravagance. And they said, well, what, what a waste. Why all this waste? Think of all that, how much that cost. We could, have, we could have helped the poor for a year with that money. Well, this is how God loves us. He loves us with a lavish love, an extravagant love, a love that, that floods into our hearts. As the psalmist said, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for those who fear him. As, as high, again, this is an expression of an unfathomable uh, you know, quantity. You, you, you can't fathom how high the heavens are above the earth. It is this vast, immeasurable measure. 
Or in the words of that old hymn by Frederick Lehman, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is an extravagant love that substantiates our hope. So God's love is an extravagant love, and it's also a gracious love. And if you remember, you know, the, the word grace, again, it's one of like, we defined hope last week as confident expectation, the biblical meaning of hope. The biblical meaning of grace is, is undeserved favor. That's what grace is. That God, God's love is a gracious love means it is a love that is far beyond our deserving. Notice the language that Paul uses to describe who we are in these verses. He uses uh, three words in verses 6 to 8, and then we'll draw a fourth word from verse 10, which is beyond the scope of our text, but we'll, it's close enough, we'll draw it in. So four terms that Paul uses to describe who we are, and all of them are utterly unflattering. I'll give you the four words, and we'll just say a little bit about each one of them. So he says we are powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. That's who we are. So first, uh, he says that God loved us when we were still powerless. And the word powerless refers to our helpless condition. It is our inability to do anything to rescue ourselves from our sin. We are, we are utterly impotent to do anything to change our sinful state and our sinful condition and the state of condemnation in which it leaves us. As Paul said back in chapter 3, we are unable even to seek God much less to do anything to, to be reconciled to him. And Paul goes on to describe us as the ungodly. And the word in Greek uh, means to live without regard for God, or as one commentator I think captures it well when he says that it is to be destitute of a reverential awe for God. All right, so to have, just have nothing, to have nothing within you that, that, is, that is inclined toward God at all. Just to, have, just, to be, just to be completely void of any desire and any sense of, of awe before the Almighty. The ungodly are those who forget God or who ignore him. Those who live for themselves and not for him. Paul says we are sinners he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that we are sinners means that we are those who miss the mark of the righteousness required of us. And of course, this is what Paul has been describing so thoroughly throughout the whole first three chapters of Romans. We, we, we lingered there for quite a while. We, we hope, hopefully we came away from that with, a, with a, a robust understanding of what it means to be sinners. As sinners, Paul had said in those early chapters, we are those who suppress the truth. We have darkened hearts that exchange the glory of God for created things. We have depraved minds and insolent attitudes. We, we violate God's law and we hurt others. We are all, Paul had said, we are all by nature under sin's power. So there is no one who is righteous. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then finally, the fourth term. If you go just a couple of Verses later, Paul says in verse 10 that we are God's enemies. 
He says, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him. That we are enemies of God means that we are in our sinful nature. We are at enmity with God, that we are opposed to him. And so it's not that we're just indifferent to God. It's not that we politely decline him and his truth. Whether we realize it or not, in our sinful nature, we cherish a deep-seated hostility toward God. We are opposed to him. We are in a state of rebellion against him. We resent his authority. We reject his truth. We resist his sovereign rule. What it really comes down to in the end is that we put ourselves on the throne when it's God's place and God's alone to be on that throne. And so this is how Paul describes us, powerless, ungodly, sinful enemies. This is who we were when God set his affection on us. And so his love for us is an utterly gracious love, a love that is grossly undeserved. He doesn't love us, love us because we are lovely. He loves us even though we are about as unlovable as we could be. A young woman once told about the time when she and her husband adopted their, their baby daughter, their little baby girl, and they had already at this time, they had a six-year-old biological son, and they were kind of wondering, you know, how he would, how receptive he would be to this new addition to the family, and, and the uh, adoption agency let the parents know that, that after their baby girl was born, they said, you know, she, she went through a really, really difficult birth, and so she's going to be okay, but she doesn't look very good. She had a facial infection, and so she, she had, so the parents went in to see her, and they, they, were, they were kind of taken aback by what they saw. Her right eye was completely swollen shut. Her, her lip was, was, was dangling completely limp to one side, uh, and she, had, she was all scrunched and had scratches, and, and because they had to give her fluids through her head, they had, she had shaved patches where they had shaved her scalp, and she just looked like a mess. And mom said it was quite an appalling sight. And she wondered if their son would be frightened or kind of put off and if they should even allow him to see her in this condition. But they decided to, no, I think, you know, he needs to, to be part of this. And so the nurses came in carrying this baby girl to, to show uh, the, you know, the family and, and this six-year-old boy. And the boy, when he saw this, this baby girl, just beamed with absolute pride and delight. And he said, oh, isn't she beautiful? And doesn't she look just like me? <laughs> he looked at this mess of a baby girl and was just filled with love for her. And in his love for her, he saw something beautiful and, and, and nothing else. That's how God loves us. Though we are messed up and disfigured by sin, though we are ungodly and lame and even hostile to him, he looks at us through the lens of love and through our justification in Christ and, and he says, aren't they beautiful? And don't they look just like me? He doesn't love us because we are lovely. He loves us simply because he loves us, even in our unloveliness. I think the Apostle Paul put it so 
clearly in Ephesians 2 when he said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Or like the prophet Ezekiel said, I saw you lying about and kicking about helpless in your own pool of blood. And I came to you and, 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 you know, and, said, and, and told you to, to live and I set my affection upon you. Paul says, as for you, you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You, you were, you were, There's nothing lovely inherently about you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were by nature, he says, deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, not because of anything lovely within us, because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So God's love for us is an utterly gracious love. So it's a, the love of God is an extravagant love. It is a gracious love. And we also see in these verses that it is a love demonstrated most profoundly at the cross. The cross is the highest possible display of God's love. Paul puts it this way. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John Stott has said, helpfully, I think, the degree of love is measured by so the way John Stott puts it, these two sort of contributing factors. If you want to know the degree or the depth or the measure of love, he says there's these two, there's these two uh, factors, these two things to consider. The degree of love is measured by, number one, the costliness of the gift, and number two, the, the worthiness of the recipient. And so the more the gift, gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. And what we see at the cross then is the greatest of all possible loves because it is the costliest of all possible gifts given to the least deserving recipients. The death of Christ at the cross was the costliest of all possible gifts. You know, we, we speak of dying for another as the highest form of love. And some of the love songs, you know, another, another love songs from the 90s, uh, Brian Adams, uh, how does, that, how does that one go? Um, somebody help me out. I would, I would lie for you. I would, I, would, I would die for you, right? Everything I do, I do it for you. So there's a song that speaks of the highest form of love. I would die for you. Well, the cross goes so far beyond that. Because at the cross, Jesus didn't just die for sinners. I mean, that, that, that might be the highest form of human love. But, but at the cross, Jesus did something far beyond that. He absorbed the full weight of God's punishment for human sin. Something that no human could ever do. His death was an atoning death. An utterly unique death in that it was the only death under the sun that bore the weight of divine wrath. And so it is the costliest of all possible gifts. And this costliest of gifts was given to those who are least deserving. He died for us while we were still sinners, Paul says. While we were in a state of rebellion. While our hearts were still hardened and obstinate. While we were kicking and screaming in our hatred towards him. While we were spitting in his face. 
and pounding the very spikes that pierced his flesh. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And so by, by both measures that John Stott identifies, by both measures, the costliness of the gift and the worthiness or the unworthiness of the recipient, this is the greatest of all possible loves. For here's a love that transcends the boundaries of human comprehension. A love that, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, is beyond knowing. So not long ago, we got a new addition to our family. Uh, I don't really know why, but we added a kitten. Her name is Ginny. I was not fully on board with the idea, but Lori was pretty persuasive, and eventually I caved. And uh, so here you can see her. And you know, Lori thought that bringing a new cuddly kitten into the home would be a source of joy. Right? I mean, how could something like this, something so cute and cuddly, not bring joy into the home? Well, quite easily, in fact. <laughs> Lori was wrong. Jenny has not been that bundle of joy that Lori was anticipating. Uh, you know, she, she destroys furniture. She walks on countertops. She makes messes. She turns borderline denom- demonic when anytime there's, she's around food. She snarls like a dog. She torments her other pets. In short, she creates chaos and stress instead of relieving it. So if anyone wants her, please let us know. (laughs) She may be better for you than she is for us. For now, this kitten gives us a little glimpse of what it looks like to love the unlovable. I mean, it's hard to muster any kind of affection for the creature. No, no, imagine, imagine this. And, and, and you know, it's, to make it even more effective, you know, a kitten, is, it's, it's hard to imagine a kitten is not unlovable. What if it's a worm or a spider? So imagine this. Imagine loving this cat or whatever creature, whatever other creature comes to your mind so much that you would give up your only beloved son to endure the unthinkable anguish that, that her beastliness deserves. To go to a cross, to die a torturous death so that she might live with you in your home forever. I mean, that is, that is insanity. What kind of love is that? And yet what, what Ginny or any other creature is to us is only a, a pale reflection of what we are to God. And yet God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sin-crazed rebels, Christ died for us. God's love for us is displayed most profoundly at the cross. So what then do we do with this great love of God? How are we called to respond to it? Well, we see throughout Scripture that It is a love that compels us to love one another. 
We who have been loved, such an extravagant, gracious, costly, self-giving love are called to love others with that same brand of love. Jesus himself made this clear as he walked willingly toward his appointed end of the cross. And in his final moments on earth with the cross looming right before him, he said to his disciples, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. The apostle John draws the same conclusion in his letter. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then what response to this amazing love call from us? John says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And of course, it evokes all kinds of things, this love of God. It evokes praise and gratitude and wonder and worship, but but consistently throughout Scripture, along with all of those other things, it, it compels us to this self-giving love towards each other. Paul says the same thing in many of his letters, in uh, his letter to the Philippians, for example. After laying out the beautiful hope of God's love in Christ, Paul said, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if you have any comfort from his love then make my joy complete by being like-minded, by having the same love. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourself. As those who have been loved with such an extravagant, gracious, costly, self-giving love, we are called to love others with that same kind of sacrificial love. Is there someone in your life who is ornery and unlovable? Is there somebody in your life that you you find so hard to love? Maybe an obstinate child. Maybe a rebellious teenager. Maybe it's a self-consumed spouse. They keep trying over and over and saying, this is what I need from you. And over and over again, they, they don't give it. Maybe it's a stubborn, set-in-their-way, aging parent. Oh, why why can't you just listen and cooperate? Why does the end of life have to be so hard? Maybe it's an an arrogant and obnoxious colleague or a hateful sibling or friend. And when they hurt you, the natural impulse is to hurt them back. That's That's just right there, always at the surface to return hate with hate, to meet rebellion with a hard hand of judgment and anger. But as disciples of Christ, we're called first to look upon the cross and to see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down and to ponder this deepest of all possible loves poured out for rebels and haters and sinners who had not yet turned away from their sin to gaze and wonder at the cross and to know how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And then having gazed upon the cross and having seen God's amazing love for us, we will have love in our hearts even for those who mistreat us. So behold, the depth of God's love for us displayed at the cross. And then go, 
Go to the rebellious and the annoying. Go to the hard-hearted and the obnoxious. Go to the scumbags and the scoundrels. Go to the haters and the enemies in your life and love them. Love them with a pure, undiluted, self-giving, sacrificial, costly kind of love. Love them out of the love that God has poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. John Stott said that this text in Romans displays the unique majesty of God's love. And what makes it uniquely majestic, he said, is the combination of three factors. He said, when Christ died for us, God, number one, was giving himself. And he was giving himself, number two, to the horrors of a sin-bearing death on the cross. And he was doing this, number three, for his undeserving enemies. There is no love in the universe that can match the wonder of his love. So let us then go from here, knowing how deeply we are loved, and out of that love, loving one another. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer this morning, we praise you, O Lord, for your deep, unfathomable love for us. A love, O Lord, that is poured out with extravagance, abundance into our hearts. A love that is utterly gracious, extended to those who least deserve it. A love that is displayed most profoundly at the cross. O Lord, in this time of silent prayer and response, I pray, O Lord, that your spirit would stir within our hearts to see and know this love that is beyond knowing, that we might have the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and that we might be filled, O Lord, with with love for one another. Lord, hear our silent prayers of response this morning. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you demonstrate your love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That as we ran our hellbound race indifferent to the cost, you looked upon our helpless state 
and led us to the cross. And we beheld your love displayed. You suffered in our place. You bore the wrath reserved for us. And all we know is grace. Oh, Lord, fill us with that gracious love again that we might be equipped to share that self-giving love with others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.